Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Randall Bomber about his new book, Passion Players, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Randall, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm actually a professor. I teach at Dartmouth College. I have been here since night in uh, since 2012, and before that, I taught for 27 years at uh, Columbia University in New York City. And uh, my field is American religious history, so I've been working along those lines for a long time. I published about I think this book is my 18th book, if I count correctly. And so I've I've done a great deal of publishing in the world of uh, American religious history. But this book about sports allowed me to kind of step outside my lane a little bit, and I had uh, a great deal of fun writing this book. And in some ways, it it, it certainly draws on my area of uh, research expertise and, and experience, but in some ways, it, it pushes me in different directions. So uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, you note in the acknowledgement section that this book is a few decades in the making. How did this? How did the idea for this book come about, and and how did that kind of evolve over time? I did my graduate work at Princeton University, and I was in the religion department because that's where I was admitted. That's where I was studying. But I took a lot of my courses in the history department. My mentor there was a man named John Murren, who sadly uh, passed away a couple of years ago from uh, COVID. And John was uh, a colonial historian, which is what I was studying with him, but he was also an inveterate sports fan. And when I was uh, playing alongside him and, and others and with the history department softball team in the summers during my graduate days at Princeton, he would often sort of launch into these um, uh, monologues about sports and why what was the the meaning behind the major sports in North America? He would talk about baseball, football, and basketball. He didn't talk about hockey. I don't think I don't remember talking about hockey at all, actually. But he got me thinking about this, and 
uh, it, as you say, it's really a book that's been 40 years in the making. I've been <laughs> kind of mulling this over for 40 years. And what John would talk about, for example, would be how baseball is the quintessential immigrant game because it's the only game where the defense controls the ball and is the object of the offensive player, the batter, to disrupt the defense's control of the ball. And he's outnumbered, that is the batter is outnumbered nine to one. There are only three islands of safety out there in that hostile world, this hostile territory. And of course, the greatest triumph is to return home, just like the immigrant wants to return home in triumph, saying that he'd been able to make his way in American society. And of course, when baseball was being developed, this was the time of massive immigration into the United States and Canada. And so the the game of baseball perfectly embodies the spirit of the immigrant. And it's also true, of course, as you know, that immigrants have always excelled at baseball. So in the 19th century, it would be immigrants from, say, Germany or Italy or Scandinavia. And in uh, more recent years, of course, immigrants are also excelling in baseball. They tend to come from the Caribbean, particularly the Dominican Republic, as well as uh, now more and more players coming from Asia. So that's what got me thinking about this book. And uh, uh, he would talk about football also as a military game concerned with the conquest and the defense of territory and basketball is a quintessential urban game. And so this book allowed me to kind of put all these ideas together, add hockey to the mix. And, uh, and uh, this is what came out of it. Passion plays. Yeah. And I, and I love how you start off early on talking about uh, sports talk radio and, and some of the symbolism <laughs> in the religious symbolism and that things I never really thought of. And I was raised, I, I, I'm a native New Yorker. So I was, you know, from the time I was a kid, I, I kind of grew up on Mike and the Mad Dog and WFAN. Sure. Um, so I certainly, other shows as well, I certainly related to that. Uh, what, what is, what is some of the religious symbolism that you found in sports talk radio? Well, what occurred to me about sports talk radio and, and uh, you know, again, I was uh, at Columbia University at the time, so I was uh, there. I actually remember the transition of WNBC to WFAN in the beginning of sports talk radio in New York City. And first, uh, my first impression, as you know, was just to be utterly befuddled by it. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> believe that these talk show hosts could uh, sustain these conversations over just the tiniest uh detail of, of the game that occurred the night or the day before, you know, should Joe Torrey have listed, lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning or something like that. And that would, the conversation would go on for hours and hours debating about this as if the debate could change what happened right. in the, in the game in the night before. But the more I thought about it, the more it occurred to me that sports talk radio is a kind of confessional. And in those years, as you'll remember, one of the taglines for the callers very often was, uh, hey, Mike, first time, long time, <laughs> meaning right. first time caller, long time listener. And it was just kind of a ritual incantation. And then, of course, the caller would go on to, to talk about whatever was on his mind. And it occurred to me that in some ways it's like a Catholic confessional. That is to say that the penitent, that is the uh, the parishioner, goes into the confessional and he says, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been six months since my last confession or whatever it is. And then uh, then the, the interaction would, would take place, much like talk radio. But it was also clear to me that the 
sports host, the talk radio host, whether it's Mike Francesa or uh, Mad Dog Russo or Steve Summers or whoever it might be, uh, that was the authority figure. And so these talk show callers would uh, kind of make their case, would kind of present their argument before the authority, that is the sports radio host. And then the host had the authority either to validate what the caller was saying or to uh, kind of dismiss it, laugh it off, you know, some preposterous trade, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to imagine, imagine something uh, crazy. Uh, you know, the Yankees should trade, uh, you know, a, a utility info infielder for uh, Carlton Fisk right. or something like that, you know, something really, really off the wall. Uh, and it seemed to me that the interaction was similar to what might go on in, in a confessional. So that's, uh, that's uh, one of the things I tried to talk about in the book. Yeah. I, I you know, I enjoyed, um, I, I love history and uh, I'm interested in American history. And, and so I kind of really enjoyed reading about how the changes in American society and culture in the 20th century and the 19th century, I'm sorry. Um, and in Canada as well, uh, kind of paved the way for competitive sports. Can you talk about some of those societal changes that, that led to these sports that we know and love today? Sure. Sure. I mean, the big one, of course, is, was the Industrial Revolution, which really did change not only uh, the economy, but it changed uh, um, domestic patterns. That is to say that in the, in the, in the days before the Industrial Revolution, uh, men would be working uh, at, at home or you know, on the farm, providing subsistence living for their families. And then with the advent of the factory system, for example, and later with uh, offices, men are beginning to work outside the home. They're socializing with other workers rather than with their family. Uh, they are uh, they are involved in, in, the, in the factories, in the textile mills, for example, early on, uh, or in some sort of sedentary office job. And so as that changes over the course of the 19th century, uh, the games are developing much at the same time. And baseball, again, is a wonderful example because baseball really was developed during the Industrial Revolution. But baseball decides in many ways to be countercultural. That is to say, baseball rejected the icon of industrialism, which is the clock. It's the only major sport that rejected the regulation of time. And when you think about baseball, I talked about it earlier as an immigrant game, and, and I believe it is, but also with baseball, the runner runs around the bases counterclockwise as though he's trying to subvert the passage of time. And baseball games are notoriously long. And today in an internet age, of course, that uh, is a problem for those of us who are guardians or consider ourselves guardians of baseball because uh, people are not tuning in any longer. They're not sitting for these long games uh, that have an indeterminate duration. And so that's one of the challenges facing baseball. But baseball remains re resolutely anti-modern, uh, anti-industrial. Uh, the other one of the other developments in the 19th century, of course, is the Civil War, that in many ways the defining moment in American history. And football comes out of the Civil War. That's just that is to say uh, football was certainly played earlier, what was called football. But football as we know it 
really was developed in the years after the Civil War. And as we know, the first intercollegiate game, of course, was played in 1869 in New Brunswick, New Jersey, between uh, Princeton and, and Rutgers. But football was really developed by the sons, brothers, and nephews of Union Army officers at elite Northeastern schools, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Rutgers, Columbia, uh, eventually Penn and, and these other schools. And what's striking to me, to me about football is the extent to which football really is a military game. That is to say, football is concerned with the con- conquest and the defense of territory, just like the Battle of Gettysburg or Antietam or Bull Run or Manassas or wherever it might be. Uh, football also has adopted the language of militarism. Uh, Even today, you'll hear announcers talk about the quarterback as the field general who marches his troops down the field. Uh, They talk about trench warfare. The quarterback unleashes long bombs or bullet passes. Uh, And even language like training camp or scouting, uh, those are all military terms. And in the book, uh, as, as you know, I, I quote a lot of 19th century people talking about football as a military game, using the language of war and warfare. And it's also striking to me that as the tactics for warfare have changed over the course of the 20th and now the 21st century, so have the tactics of football. Football used to be a ground game, uh, like tank warfare or uh, trench warfare in World War I. And now, of course, uh, football, uh, at least at the collegiate level and the NFL level, is uh, marked by uh, passing. So it's aerial warfare at the same time that the tactics of the battlefield have shifted to the to the airways. I I have to ask you because it, it couldn't help come to my mind reading your descriptions and kind of comparison of baseball and football. Are you familiar with George Carlin's old routine comparing the two sports? Yes. yes. It's fantastic, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it is, yes. A bunt, right? Yes, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> or a sacrifice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and baseball, everybody wants to everybody wants to go home and they want to be safe at home. <laughs> right, exactly. Um I, I want to touch on this notion of uh muscular Christianity because I think that's you know, as you discussed in the book, is important to the development of sports. And um, for me, when I think of muscular Christianity, just thinking of that term, Teddy Roosevelt kind of pops into mind for me. Um, but so where did where did that where did that idea of muscular Christianity come from? And how is it a, a departure from previous views within Christianity? Yeah, there there was a lot of concern in the 19th century, again, with the Industrial Revolution. And the concern actually originated in Britain and then uh, came across the Atlantic. Uh, Churchmen were afraid that, first of all, men were not showing up in church. Uh, Women were really really taking over the life of the church. And this was true both in Britain and in uh, North America. And they were also concerned that men were not getting enough exercise. They were working in these sedentary office jobs, uh, or they were working in the factory, not getting enough fresh air, not getting enough exercise, and um, were coming, were becoming almost effeminate. And that was one of the concerns. And so, these churchmen, who at that time were Protestant, 
began to devise uh, what they called muscular Christianity, which emphasized that uh, the, the the New Testament uh, emphases on both militarism and athleticism. If you read in the New Testament, for example, St. Paul talks about uh, putting on the full armor of God and doing battle against the devil. Paul talks about finishing the course, running the race. Uh, those are military uh, metaphors and athletic metaphors. And so muscular Christianity combined all of that and began to valorize these, uh, these athletic muscular Christians. And uh, probably the best institutional example of that would be, of course, the Young Men's Christian Association or the YMCA, which uh, catered to young men coming into the cities uh, during the Industrial Revolution and tried to find, uh, provide for them a place of refuge. And of course, recreation was very much part of that. And then the direct consequence of that was the invention of the game of basketball by an instructor at the YMCA training school, now known as Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. And the idea, once again, was to provide recreation for young men during or between the football and the baseball seasons. So that would be probably the best example of muscular Christianity. But this theme has uh, remained... Uh, very much prominent in uh, in Christian circles. Uh, the Catholics picked up uh, on it, for example, with the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, with uh, basketball, <clears throat> pardon me, basketball leagues and boxing tournaments and that sort of thing. And probably the most uh, uh, most uh, obvious recent example of muscular Christianity would be the Promise Keepers movement of the 1990s that uh, was really begun by a football coach at the University of Colorado uh, who uh, decided to uh, gather men into stadiums and uh, try to encourage them to be manly Christians, to be people of faith. So this muscular Christianity movement uh, is sort of in the the background in in all of these four major team sports, but it's especially important in the development of basketball. Right. Uh, I want to ask you about baseball a little bit. Uh, you know, I found this stuff about kind of the, the origin story or the, the desire to have an origin story around baseball fascinating. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and how that ties into our religious tendencies? Sure. I mean, one of the characteristics of, of uh, religion is uh, myth. Uh, and I'm not saying that as a way to dismiss faith by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, I'm a person of faith myself. Uh, but a myth is an important part of of uh, religion. And with baseball, you have the Cooperstown myth. And of course, everybody is familiar with this story, or most people at least, that um, Abner Doubleday Uh, sat down uh, on a street corner in uh, Cooperstown, New York, and mapped out the game of baseball. And that was played that afternoon in uh, 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 Elihu Finney's uh, cow pasture in Cooperstown, New York. It's a wonderful story. It emphasizes the rural sort of bucolic origins of baseball. But it's just, it, it, it's a myth. Um, Abner Doubleday actually was a cadet at West Point when he supposedly 
invented baseball at Cooperstown, New York. And the person who was responsible for this story was actually five years old at the time. And uh, it just has no, no uh, historical backing. But nevertheless, it's an important myth because it tells us something about what uh, baseball was supposed to represent. That is uh, this rural sort of bucolic game that was fashioned, again, during the Industrial Revolution. And what's striking me about baseball is if you fly into any major city, New York, Atlanta, wherever it may be, you fly over all of these uh, buildings and these concrete canyons, but then you also see these islands of green in the middle of them. They're, and they are parks very often, but very often they're also baseball fields. And so baseball really tries to stand against industrialism, not only in the rejection of a clock, as we talked about earlier, but also because uh, it it maintains the, the kind of grassy and green fields that we associate with rural life rather than than urban life. So the mythology surrounding baseball is important, I think, for baseball's sort of uh, self-understanding, uh, but uh, it's not the historical origin of, of the game. Um, I, I'm wondering, as you're saying that, you know, how baseball is really a response to industrialism. And now that we're moving into, I wonder if it no longer holds up in, in what is, you know, becoming the post-industrial age, the more, the technological age is that, do you think that's a kind of a, a, a an issue with the game right now, a cause for some well, lack of interest? Absolutely. I think, you know, we're living in a, in a society that uh, values uh, time, uh, well, at least in, at least uh, in, in a, in a surface sort of way. And, um, and, and baseball really aspires to be timeless, right? right. Uh, the, the passage of time is not supposed to be important to the game of baseball. And we're living in an age when people are very conscious about time. Uh, they want to be on time. You know, they, they don't have time to wait for anything. You know, everything is instantaneous. And so baseball, I think, is facing a real crisis. Now, Major League Baseball, as you know, for next season has decided to adopt a, a pitching clock and other uh, reforms that uh, are meant to improve the game and try to speed along the pace of the games. But uh, in some ways, I, and I certainly favor that because I think you know the, these pitching changes are much too long, yeah. for example. Um, and I think the real problem is the players kind of preening for the television cameras by stepping out of the batter's box or stepping off the pitching mound and so forth. That's my own sort of layman's understanding of the problem. But uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Baseball is facing a crisis because uh, it, it has not been able to manage time in the way that the other sports have, have done. Right. So you talked a little bit about before about, you know, how, how football is an outgrowth of the civil war. And of course the comparisons between football and, and battle. And, you know, obviously people have always enjoyed watching violent competition, going back to the gladiators in ancient Rome for many years in this country, boxing was the preeminent violent sport. Is there something within our nature that craves that type of action? Do we, do we as a society need a violent sport as a diversion? Yeah, I wonder. Um, what's, what's striking to me about 
American society is that it is a violent society. Uh, we see that, of course, in the daily news. We see it with these uh, terrible mass shootings. Uh, we see it with uh, our history. You can look back into our history. The, the Indian Wars, the so-called Indian Wars of the 19th century, Manifest Destiny, pressing to the West Coast and then uh, displacing or eliminating Native Americans along the way. Uh, we are a violent society. There's something about uh, Americans who love uh, that loves violence, and uh, I I hesitate to say that, but I, I think it, it's really true. And there's something about the violence of football, or for Canadians, uh, the violence of hockey, that uh, is attractive to to us as, as North Americans. Now, I think the difference between hockey and football in terms of violence is that. In hockey, again, at the professional level, you have these violent uh, eruptions. But what's different about football is that violence is scripted into the game itself. So it's it's a fundamental part of football to be violent. And uh, it's, it's just the nature of things. But I think, uh, I think there's something about American society that uh, gravitates to violence. Uh, I teach a course here at Dartmouth called Sports, Ethics, and Religion. We had a discussion the other day about whether football is America's game. And I think the consensus on the part of the students, and it probably is, is, is my conclusion as well, is that there's something about American society with our love of violence that... Uh, makes it likely that we would be attracted to a game like football. Now, you can argue, and I think there is an argument for this, that the violence that is enacted on the football field can be a sort of proxy for violence in the larger society in the sense that perhaps in, a many, in, in some way it sort of uh, mitigates the violence we might otherwise see on the streets or elsewhere in our society because we have the vicarious experience of violence on the football field. I suppose there's an argument for that, and I think there's probably some some, uh, basis for saying that sort of thing. But uh, nevertheless, we are a a violent society. I'll just give you a, a, a quick anecdote from uh, my personal experience. Um, some years ago, I was uh, working on a, a PBS documentary uh, with uh, with a director from Britain. And so we spent a lot of time together and, and uh, over the course of, of really a couple of years. And uh, at one time, he told me that he was really considering coming to America, that is moving to the United States. And he thought it over very carefully especially during the time he was here in the U.S. And he decided finally he could not do it because America, he said, was too violent a place, too violent a society. So I think it's, it's um, in some ways part of our DNA, which may be part of the reason that we're drawn to the game of football. And I have to say, yeah, I'll, I'll confess, I'm drawn to the game of football <laughs> myself. So I'm not trying to talk about other people. I'm talking about myself as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've been a big football fan my whole life, and I've I found myself in you know the last ten years or so uh, involved in a kind of personal moral dilemma in in following the game as as I've seen yes so many you know there have been so many reports about the concussions, and I've seen so many features and read about so many of the the players that I loved watching as as a kid and a young man, and and you know the 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 way they've struggled with due to CTE, yes. CTE the repeated concussions. Um, 
And you talk, right. you talk in the book a little bit about people wanting to ban the game in you know long time you know late eighteenth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. There, there were, and there were schools that did ban it for periods of time. Is there any type, to your knowledge, is there any type of movement within the religious community today to ban football? I'm not aware of any. I, I'm, I'm not. I, I think it's, you know, it's just too, too big a lift. <laughs> that is the, it's, it's far too popular a game. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, in the early days of football, and it was even more brutal then than it is now, obviously because of uh, lack of protective gear and the rules were different as well. You could, uh, you could strike an opposing player three times with a closed fist <laughs> before you were ejected from the game in the early days of football, and uh, the early. Almost every account I read of a 19th century football game included the word brutal or brutality in the description of the game. It was that it was that violent. And, uh, you know, again, as you know, from the book, uh, various schools, uh, even the town of New Haven uh, outlawed football for a time. But again, it was just too popular and it, it, it came back. But no, I'm not aware of any uh, religious group trying to. Uh, to eliminate football, I, th- I think uh, the 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 pushback would be far too great. Uh, you know, we talk about the difficulty in in outlawing AR-15s or something like that. Um, if anybody tried to outlaw football, I think there'd probably be even a greater reaction. Yeah, I to think it. that'd be a losing battle. <laughs> um, moving on to hockey, you uh, you're actually the chapter on hockey in the book is called "Soul of a Nation." Uh, that nation, of course, being Canada. How did hockey become so intertwined with the Canadian identity? It's a fascinating story. And, and I have to say, in, in writing the book, hockey is the game I knew least about. And frankly, the game that I followed uh, even uh, less closely than the other games, although I, I, I do follow them at least from afar. Uh, I, I learned a lot in, playing, uh, in, in writing about hockey. Hockey, of course... Was directly descended from the game of lacrosse, and what's fascinating about lacrosse in Canada is that lacrosse claimed to be Canada's game the same year, 1867, as the Canadian Confederation. That is the year that Canada effectively became an independent entity from from Great Britain. And there was a a dentist in Montreal by the name of George Beers, who was fascinated with the game of hockey, which of course is a Native American game. And he would go watch the the Native Americans play lacrosse or what they called Bagataway outside uh, Montreal. And he described the games that he was watching as, first of all, a game with no boundary or playing field with no boundary. And he said a thousand players on a team, which is probably an exaggeration, but nevertheless, it, it was really a mob game. And he was nevertheless fascinated with the game, and he decided that the game of hockey needed to be regularized. And so uh, he was a Presbyterian, and as you may know, the kind of the watch phrase for Presbyterians is that they needed to do, they needed to do everything decently and in order. And so what he tried to do was to bring order to the game of lacrosse by providing boundaries, that is a constricted playing area, and also provide rules and limit the number of players on on each side. And 
he, at the same time in 1867, he makes this case that lacrosse should be Canada's game, that Canadians should re, re, uh, reject cricket because it's a British game and it's too refined, it's too uh, middle class, too prissy. He didn't use that words, but, word, but that's what he was talking about, in favor of a rough and tumble game that reflected the, the great expanses of the Canadian wilderness. And then, of course, as lacrosse evolves into ice hockey, it becomes even more Canadian in the sense that it uh, really incorporates the the frozen wilderness of the Canadian north. So uh, hockey is a game that is really tied with Canadian identity. Uh, I talk about the 1972 Summit Series between Canadian professionals and Soviet Union hockey players who were amateurs. And Canada, of course, went into that series thinking, well, this is our game, hockey, and uh, you know we're going to dispatch these Soviets rather easily. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, the Soviets won the first game, which uh, it was, a, was a real blow to Canadian identity. And then uh, the series shifted eventually to Moscow. And in the eighth game, uh, in a tied series, uh, this is the game that was going to decide the series, uh, it wasn't until 34 seconds left that Paul Henderson finally scored a goal for the Canada team. And uh, all of Canada just kind of erupted in <laughs> elation at that moment. Uh, I have a friend, a former student, actually, who talks about that. He said, just as, as uh, Americans remember where they were when you know, for us older generation, when John Kennedy was shot, for example, or uh, when news of the Challenger disaster or 9-11 uh, came across the the, the airwaves, uh, Canadians remember where they were in 1972 when the Canadians finally won the Summit Series. And once again, Canada, um, pardon me, hockey was Canada's game. Yeah. You know, you talk a little bit about how popular hockey night in Canada is. And, you know, I think to a lesser extent in this country, certainly at one time, I think Monday night football had that kind yes. of following. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. do, do you view those, those events as in a way replacing or at least supplementing Sunday morning church? I think they have. I, I think, and if you look at the the statistics, uh, the the level of uh, religious adherence in North America, both Canada and the United States, has gone down over the last several decades. We in the United States are still a religious nation. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, but it, there's also no question that the level of re- religious adherence has gone down rather dramatically over the last uh, several decades. At the same time, you have increased uh, interest and passion and affiliation with uh, with sports. And I think in many ways, uh, the loyalties of many Americans, that is both Canadians and people in the United States, have shifted from the sanctuary to the stadium, which of course is another sort of variant in sacred space. The stadium, particularly these older stadiums, Fenway Park or Lambeau Field or Wrigley Field, uh, are sacred space to a lot of fans much the way that religion was once was a sacred space for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Moving on to basketball, basketball. Um, you know, you talk in the book, of course, about how religious institutions are 
perhaps no, most notably the YMCA's had a big impact on the spread of the game of basketball. Um, yes. mm-hmm. Is there, was that just a result of Dr. Naismith's, you know, own history in, in divinity and his in, inclinations or is there, is there a reason that YMCA's kind of gravitated to basketball in particular? Well, I think it, it, in large measure because basketball was invented at, at the YMCA up in, in Springfield, Massachusetts, but also the spread of basketball is due, I think, largely to the fact that it was the graduates of these YMCA schools, particularly what is now Springfield College, as they began to fan out across North America and eventually to the world, uh, starting or becoming uh, directors of local YMCAs, they brought basketball with them. But the other the other factor in the emergence or the spread of basketball is the fact that Naismith wanted a game that could be played with very, very little um, uh, equipment. So all you needed was um, a, a, a basketball hoop and a, and a ball. Of course, originally it was a peach basket, but uh, later it evolved into a basketball hoop. And you could play the bas- game of basketball almost anywhere. And of course, you have it now uh, rather predominantly in urban spaces and asphalt uh, playgrounds with basketball hoops and so forth. But also it's played in Indian reservations and you know out in mission fields. Uh, you know, missionaries brought basketball to various places all around the world. And so it began to spread all over the, all over the world. And that was one of the, the um, fondest hopes that Naismith had for the game of basketball. And he was able to see that uh, during his lifetime. And of course you were, you were just talking about, you know, with the sacred spaces involved with uh, base, baseball, Lambeau field. I think, I think we particularly, we tend to associate that more so with baseball. I think something about the, you talk about in the, in the book, some, the, the, the pastoral nature of it and, and the green open field and often in the middle of an urban setting, there's something kind of majestic about that. Um, does that sense of sacred split, sacred space apply to basketball, which as you noted is of course very much an urban game? Yeah, I think it does. It's probably more particular for a team's fans than it would be for all fans sort of indiscriminately. But for example, we've got, you have people who are very devoted to Madison Square Garden, for example, or the old Boston Garden where the Celtics played with the parquet floor and all that stuff. That was very important to to, uh, you know, certainly Celtics fans, but also other basketball fans. Uh, part of the problem is that there's the the number of arenas going up all the time and, and new stadiums is, is so rapid, <laughs> so uh, fevered in many ways that uh, fans don't have time to kind of connect with the history of a particular place the way they do with a with Wrigley Field, for example, or Fenway Park or, you know, the big house in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, they don't have the same sort of uh, historical resonances that uh, the older places do. Yeah, and, and as as you're as you're answering that, I'm thinking, you know, in basketball, I, to some extent, um, those sacred places have become uh, kind of inner city pickup type places, like a, like a Rucker Park in in New York, or for some people, even just the, you know, the 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 
the the park in their neighborhood community that they grew up playing on. There's something I, I think something about, like you said, the urban nature of the game and, and the fact that you can. The wonderful thing about basketball is, you know, as you said, all you need is a basket and a ball, and you can play it by yourself. So you can. For I, th- I think a lot of people, and sometimes even within communities, that mythology around the game is created within a local park more so than even the, you know, the Madison square gardens of the world. That's right. Yeah. And that's a very good point. And, and I do point out that, you know, uh, in, in places like New York or Chicago, you know, we have these local, local legends who never made it to the college level or let alone to the pro level who are still sort of uh, spoken of in, in hushed and, and reverent tones in these various neighborhoods and communities. Right. Um, we can't talk about the the religious symbolism in sports without discussing the collision between sports and politics. How do the how do the religious roots of sports play into people's reactions to, for example, the Colin Kaepernick situation where he took a knee on the field, or, or even going back many years to the desegregation of of various sports? How do the religious roots play into that? Well, certainly religious folks, uh, you know, very often were pushing for that sort of uh, integration, particularly Jewish sports writers, uh, by the way, with the integration of baseball. That was a very important element of, of, of that desegregation. But one of the things I observe in the book is that we live in a society where we once once took moral direction from religious leaders, people like Walter Rauschenbusch, who's the um, associated with the social gospel movement at the turn of the 20th century, for example, or Dorothy Day or uh, Thomas Merton or Abraham Joshua Heschel in uh, Judaism or uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, Martin Luther King Jr. I think more often than not these days, uh, we get our moral direction from uh, sports figures. And uh, Colin Kaepernick, I think, is one example of that. Uh, recently, uh, LeBron James and other athletes have talked about uh, the, the persistence of racism in American society. And I think in many ways, we're now looking to the arena of sports for our moral authority. Now, I think that says something um, probably not all that healthy about our society, or at least the state of religion in our society. But uh, I think it's the, nevertheless the case that that's where we find our moral direction these days. We've talked a lot about the, the religious symbolism in various sports, and, and some of it is fairly obvious to you know, any observer, the, the devotion to team, the rituals, the deification of certain athletes. Um, and you talk about other examples in the book. Is there something in human nature that that gravitates to that religious or devotional mindset? I think there probably is. I'm not really an expert on that sort of thing, but yes, I think we, I, I think what what both religion and sports have in common is that, uh, at their best, at least, they take us out of ourselves. They take us out of our ordinary, everyday, quotidian lives and uh, take us to another level. Uh, you know, those of us who are people of faith can talk about moments of spiritual uplifting or even ecstasy, uh, much the way that I think a sports fan would, take a, would, would, would have an appreciation for the uh, athleticism and the artistry of uh, Michael Jordan or, or um, you know, um, uh, Matthew Stafford. Uh, they, they understand the, you know, the grace and, and the 
and the or they uh, they appreciate the grace and the athleticism of these uh, individuals who can perform at a level that uh, most of us uh, can never <laughs> can never aspire to and that kind of lifts us it it's 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 a, a euphoric moment that is not all that different from what uh, people of faith uh, sometimes experience in in uh, their religious context you we, you talked before about how you know even though the number of people in this country who believe in God or associate with organized religion has declined, appears to continue to decline, um, that, that we are still a religious country. Um, have you examined all the influence of religion on sports in other countries as compared to the United States? You know, we talked about Canada a little bit, but yeah, just just Canada. Yeah, no, there's there's certainly, I mean, the World Cup, of course, is a, something that uh, that uh, you know, is is very important to people all around the world uh, with the, uh, the soccer champion, championship, and there's a lot of passion surrounding that as well. But I haven't really I haven't really looked at that. No, I'm a, I'm an American historian, so right. um, I kept my focus there. Um, okay, Randall, I think I'll. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you about the book. I'll, I'll get you out of here with one last question um, that I like to ask all my guests. But uh, first, once again, let me say the name of Randall's book is Passion Play, Passion Plays, uh, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Um, it really, you know, as I told Randall before we came on the air, it, it really kind of, um, I, I'm a longtime sports fan, obviously, and it, it forced me to look at the games that I love in different ways. And, um, that's, you know, that doesn't happen to me very often. That's a cool, that's a cool thing. So, um, I, I'm delighted to hear that. That's yeah, great. And, you know, so anytime a book can open your mind or show you new perspectives, that's a good thing. Um, uh, so Randall, let me, uh, let me ask you this final question. What is your all time favorite sports book? Oh my goodness! Wow. Oh, um, I'm trying to remember the the name of it. I I, I read it as a child. Um, the glory of their times uh, is a wonderful book about uh, baseball in some of its early years, uh, and it's been you know decades since I read the book, but uh, I love that book. Yeah, it's very good. All right. Well, Randall, thanks again for coming on and, and talking about the book. Um, I wish you best of luck with it. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the conversation. Great questions. Thank you.